Welcome back to The Jewish Story, a Jewish history podcast for the 21st century. In this show, we'll take a look back at the history of the Jewish people, relying on historical documents, archaeological artifacts, and linguistic data to paint a picture of the past. Last episode, we examined Jewish life from the mid-4th to the mid-6th century CE. We watched early Christianity struggle to find its place in the world alongside Judaism, and eventually emerge with its adoption by Emperor Constantine as an extremely powerful force and official religion of the Roman Empire. As Christianity's influence grew, Jews began to experience increasing hostility and discrimination. Notable members of the Christian Church peddled hateful anti-Semitic rhetoric, the Patriarchate was destroyed along with many synagogues, and by the mid-6th century, Jews were significantly restricted from public employment. But of course, Jews by this time had spread far beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. So, this week, we will see what was happening across the Jewish diaspora while Christianity was rising in Rome. We will split our story into sections, each covering a key geographic area, including the Iberian Peninsula, Mesopotamia, the Arabian Peninsula, and Africa. Before we begin with some history, remember that I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So send any she'elot my way to jewishstorypod at gmail.com. That's jewishstorypod at gmail.com. Before we dive into some diaspora history, let's first get, you guessed it, a geopolitical update. By the end of the 5th century, the Roman Empire had fractured. The Byzantine Empire in the east was gaining significant power, while the Western Roman Empire was dissolving and would eventually fold completely. And, while all of this turmoil was brewing, all around the borders of the Roman Empire, many other groups held territory. We have already spoken about the Persian Sasanians to the east, who ruled a territory that extended all the way east into India. South of the Roman Empire, in Africa, a number of smaller kingdoms ruled. The Himyarites, an independent kingdom, ruled in present-day Yemen. Across the Red Sea, in modern-day Ethiopia, the powerful Aksumite kingdom ruled. Several smaller kingdoms inhabited the eastern African coast, between Egypt and Ethiopia, and in central and southern Africa, the Kushites and other nomadic and pastoral tribes lived. West of the Roman Empire lay the Iberian Peninsula, a tract of land encompassing Portugal, Spain, and southern France. This territory was once Roman, but by the mid-5th century was settled by the Visigoths, an offshoot of a Germanic tribe who had been in constant conflict and negotiation with the Romans. Finally, in western Saudi Arabia, a region known as the Hejaz, a number of small independent Arab and Jewish tribes cohabitated. We will try to examine these regions one at a time and in a somewhat chronological order. A warning, there is some crossover here, so bear with me as I give you a Jewish tour of the world in the 5th and 6th centuries. We will start off looking at the Sasanian-ruled region of Babylonia, also known as Persia. The Sasanian religion, Zoroastrianism, actually had some remarkable similarities to Judaism. Most notably, both religions emphasized the importance of what they considered purity, especially when it came to caring for the dead, menstruation, and nocturnal emissions of semen. Because of these similarities, and because the Persians lacked the belief in Jewish deicide, Jews in Sasanian territories enjoyed a good deal of freedom. They shared the same legal rights as all other citizens, 
and inhabited a wide variety of social standing and occupations, ranging from river traders, porters, and mule drivers to physicians, landowners, and even royalty. The Sasanian Jews frequently used the Persian courts to settle civil disputes. In fact, Samuel, a contemporary senior rabbi in the region, made the proclamation that the civil law is valid law. The Jewish representative to the Sasanian Empire was called the Resh Galuta, or head of the community in Hebrew, also known as the Exilarch. He had the status of a minor Persian nobleman, and as a result lived very comfortably and had direct access to the Sasanian court. The successive Exilarchs were typically from the same group of families who traced their descent to Jehoiakim, the side-switching king we heard about in season one. The kind treatment of Jews by the Persians led to significant cultural differences between Jews in Babylonia and Syria-Palestina, which is reflected in religious debates in the Talmud between the wealthy, free-spirited Babylonian rabbis, who, by the way, were often polygamous, and the more serious, somber rabbis of the Palestinian yeshivot. In the first decade of the 7th century, the new Byzantine emperor, Heraclius, issued a decree that all Jews in the empire were to be forcibly converted to Christianity. He banned weekday Jewish services and forbade the reciting of the Shema, a central Jewish prayer. This was the most significant legal decree against the Jews to date, and the Sasanian Empire saw an opportunity to mobilize their own Jewish population to try to press the Romans for territory. The Sasanian king at the time, Khosrau II, appealed to Nehemiah, the Jewish Reshgaluta of the time, to ask Babylonia's Jewish population to support the Sasanians in a military campaign against the Byzantines. Nehemiah rallied the troops and mobilized 20,000 Jewish fighters to join the Sasanian campaign. The joint Jewish-Persian army successfully breached Byzantine defenses, taking the city of Antioch and then sweeping west into Judea. After a three-week-long siege, the Jewish faction managed to take back Jerusalem, which went on to become an autonomous Jewish city-state within the Persian Empire. This was a big deal for the Jews. For many, it was the first time since Hadrian's banishment of Jews that they had been truly able to return to the city. As the Jewish soldiers swept through Judea, still burning with anger over their brutal treatment by the Christians, there are stories that some of them destroyed churches and killed local Christians. Though there is no archaeologic evidence of ruined churches, piles of bones have been found on one site in Jerusalem that do hint at the possible retribution Jews exacted upon the Christians of Jerusalem. The Persian Jews maintained control of Jerusalem until the year 628 CE when Heraclius returned with his Roman legions and exacted a terrible retribution. As Jews were living in relative security among the Sasanians, much of the Iberian Peninsula to the west had been taken over by the Visigoths. Prior to the late 4th century, the Visigoths were an agriculturalist people who had settled in present-day Romania. But in 376 CE, a fierce group of nomadic conquerors called the Huns drove the Visigoths from their land and into the Roman Empire. The Visigoths were initially granted refuge by the Romans, but were treated very poorly and eventually revolted. This conflict came to a head in 378 CE, when the Visigoths ultimately defeated the Roman Emperor in battle at the city of Adrianople. From this point on, the Visigoths continued to wander the Roman Empire searching for somewhere more permanent to settle, and eventually, in the early 5th century, they landed on the Iberian Peninsula. 
However, the Iberian Peninsula was hardly empty when the Visigoths arrived there. At least a century earlier, there is evidence of a Jewish presence there, particularly in Spain. We know this based on several reference points. First, a church document from the Council of Elvira in 300 CE contains a number of prohibitions related to Christian-Jewish relations in Spain. The church outlawed Jewish-Christian intermarriage, Christians sharing a meal with Jews, and landlords allowing Jews to bless their crops. Second, in the Spanish town of Adra, the grave of a female infant has been found, inscribed with the word Judea, or Jewess. Finally, in Romans 15, Paul states his desire to pay a visit to Spain, something he often did when there were Jewish communities that might be ripe for conversion. The earliest Spanish Jews were known as Sephardim, a name derived from an initial reference in the book of Obadiah. By the time they settled in the Iberian Peninsula, the vast majority of the Visigoths had converted to a sect of Christianity called Arian Christianity. Initially started by Arius, a Christian preacher from Alexandria, the defining characteristic of Arian Christianity was that they saw Jesus as distinct from and subservient to God, as opposed to being truly divine himself. But throughout the late 5th and early 6th centuries, more and more of the Visigoths were converting to Catholicism. This wave of conversion culminated in 587 CE, when the Visigoth king Recared himself converted, perhaps in an attempt to resolve some discord between the Arian Visigoths and the Catholic Hispano-Romans, who were also living in Spain. To prove his devotion to his new religion, Recared and subsequent kings introduced a number of anti-Jewish laws. Anti-Semitism was very fashionable in Catholicism at this time. He decreed that Jews in the Visigothic kingdoms were to be forcibly converted to Christianity, and thereafter would be known as New Christians. This distinct name marked them as former Jews, and implied that the true Christian Visigoths should keep a close eye on them. If, after conversion, a Jew was to stray back to their old ways, they would be charged with Judaizing, a serious offense. The Visigoths also kept a very tight watch on where these New Christians traveled. Non-converted Jews were banned from travel through much of the kingdom. The new Christians had a bit more freedom to travel, although they were still forced to check in with local church officials all along their route to ensure they had not returned to any Jewish practices. If a Jew was found to be breaking any of these laws, they would be subject to fierce and brutal punishment. One of these punishments was called de calvatio. We do not have a direct description of what de calvatio entailed, but there are two leading theories. Either the Jews were forced to receive an embarrassingly short haircut, or, more gruesomely, they may have been scalped. Other punishments for law-breaking Jews included confiscation of their belongings, expulsion from the kingdom, and amputation of various body parts. The punishment for intermarriage was penis amputation for the man and nose amputation for the woman. Across the Strait of Gibraltar, Jews had also settled in North and East Africa. Much of the earliest history of African Jewry comes from legend, as there is little written historical data. However, we can confidently say that there was a wave of Jewish immigration there in the 2nd century CE, after the First Roman-Jewish War. There are several legends describing the early Jews who settled in Ethiopia. According to a medieval account, the Queen of Sheba, after traveling to Israel and meeting King Solomon, traveled back to Ethiopia, where she gave birth to Solomon's son, who became Ethiopia's first king. 
In terms of where the early Ethiopian Jewish population came from, there are several theories. One says that they were an offshoot of the Jewish tribe of Dan. Another postulates that they were an offshoot from the group of Jews who migrated to Egypt in the 7th and 6th centuries BCE. There is also a theory that Jews from the kingdom of Himyar in modern-day Yemen, who had lots of conflict with the Aksumite kingdom in Ethiopia, may have traveled there during battle and ended up settling there permanently. But however they came to be, the first Jewish settlements seemed to have been situated around Lake Tana, and the Jews there were fairly independent in self-rule, although often coming into conflict with later Christian rulers of Ethiopia. In North Africa, much of the early history again comes from inference or legend. The first settlement of Middle Eastern peoples in North Africa occurred in the early first millennium BCE, when the Phoenicians arrived. The Phoenicians were an ancient Middle Eastern people with a language very similar to Hebrew. According to some tales, the next people to come through North Africa were an early Canaanite tribe, the Girgashi people. The fact that there are Jews in North Africa who speak Hebrew as opposed to Aramaic suggests that a migration of Jews likely took place prior to the 6th century BCE, perhaps after the fall of the first temple. Another wave of immigration also occurred after the Roman Jewish Wars, with Jews fleeing Roman persecution to settle in places like Tunisia and Cyrenica. Finally, let us look at the most highly populated Jewish area of the diaspora outside of Babylonia, the Arabian Peninsula. Jews had already begun migrating from Judea south through the Arabian Peninsula by the beginning of the first century CE. Excavations at the site of Zafar have uncovered a signet ring dated to the second to third centuries that is inlaid with the image of a Torah shrine with the Hebrew name of its owner engraved upon it. Recent DNA studies on Yemeni Jews have also confirmed their ancestral origin in southwestern Arabia. These Arabian Jews seem to have had Arabic names, dressed like Arabs, and were organized into semi-tribal extended family clans, just like their Arab neighbors. There is also evidence that, in fact, many of these Arabic Jews were ethnic Arabs, who had been converted to Judaism at some point during or after the Hasmonean conquests. During the early days of the first millennium, these Arabian Jews had settled all along the western coast of Saudi Arabia, an area known as the Hejaz. The Hejaz was not governed by any one empire, but was instead settled by a number of Arab tribes. The Jews who initially migrated to this area set up camps all along the western coast, aiming to take advantage of a popular nautical trade route, which carried goods from the Arabian Sea, through the Red Sea, and up through the Suez Canal into Egypt. One particularly important group of Jews settled on the island of Yotabe, now known as Tiran Island which is located at the junction between the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. This location was strategic because anyone wanting to sail to or from the Gulf had to pass right by the island. By the second century CE, the island was almost entirely populated by Jews, who worked primarily as toll collectors, collecting a fee from any ship passing by. Most of the extracted fees were sent back to the Byzantine Empire, with the rest used to support the community. The Byzantines were quite happy with this arrangement, and so they left Yotabi alone, allowing it to function as a small, almost autonomous Jewish tributary state. At the other end of the Red Sea, another community of Jews had settled in the port of Aden, which was situated in the gulf separating the southern tip of the Red Sea from the vast Arabian Sea to its south. 
This too was a strategic location, giving the Jews their full control of any goods passing through the Red Sea. On land, Jews established chains of settlements all along the Arabian camel caravan routes, particularly along the Via Odorifera, a popular trade route leading up from Yemen into the Hejaz. One of the most powerful Jewish trade cities was called Khaybar, and was home to one of the most powerful Jewish clans in the area, known as the Banu Nadir. The Banu Nadir clan made their living manufacturing weapons, armor, and siege engines, as well as silks and textiles. They would go on to help found the city of Yathrib, otherwise known as Medina. This will be a key location in our story shortly. These Jewish trade routes continued to prosper until the mid-6th century, when the Byzantine emperor Justinian started to become suspicious of the Jews' control over trade. He did not trust them with such power, particularly with ongoing wars against the Persians, and so he began to ban Jews from trading. Right around the time Justinian was seeking to ban Jewish trade, another fascinating piece of Jewish history was taking place just next door in the kingdom of Himyar, located in present-day Yemen. Himyar had been home to Jews since at least 25 BCE, and in the early 5th century CE, its ruling Arab clan was involved in a protracted conflict with a group of neighboring Christians. This conflict left a sour taste in the mouth of their king, Ab Karib Asad, and he went looking for a religion that could help him rise above the conflict. King Ab Karib Asad was formally converted to Judaism shortly thereafter, and, based on archaeologic excavation in the area, it seems that a large proportion of the kingdom's people converted as well. Archaeologists have found Jewish ritual baths among Himyarite ruins. A number of Himyarites have been found buried in the Jewish necropolis at Beit Shearim, and some Muslim sources make reference to rabbis visiting Himyar from Tiberias to instruct the Himyarite court. The successive kings of Himyar seemed to continue practicing Judaism, and many attempted to convert Arabs from neighboring areas. The last and most militantly proselytizing Jewish king of Himyar was Du Nuvas, also known as Yusef Asar, who was known for his sometimes violent conversion missions, as well as his execution of Christian merchants who had the misfortune of traveling through the kingdom. In 525 CE, the Roman emperor Justin I was growing concerned about the aggressive tactics of the Himyarite kingdom and asked the newly converted Christian Aksumite kingdom to intervene. The Aksumite king, Caleb, brought a huge army to invade Himyar and defeated Dunuvas, ending the Jewish Arabian kingdom for good. The Jews of Himyar fled north into the Hejaz, where they joined the already significant Jewish Arab population there. No more than 50 years after the fall of the kingdom of Himyar, in the nearby city of Mecca, a boy was born who just as Jesus of Nazareth had before him, would go on to change the world. I am speaking, of course, about the prophet Muhammad. The story of Muhammad's early life comes to us primarily through Islamic writings, and there is little supporting historical evidence. But following his sojourn into Yathrib, there is much more evidence to draw from. Just as with our exploration of Jesus last season, remember that what follows is not meant to be a comprehensive review of Muhammad's life, and may not be completely in line with traditional Muslim teaching. I will try, as best as possible, to reflect the most widely accepted historical account of Muhammad's life. In around the year 570 CE, Muhammad was born to a prominent family from the Quraysh tribe in the city of Mecca, 
a powerful religious city which lay right in the center of the Hejaz. Muhammad had a difficult life. By the time he was six years old, both of his parents had died, and by eight years old, his grandfather, who had become his guardian, died as well. He eventually came under guardianship of his uncle, Abu Talib, and traveled around with him while he sold wares as a merchant. According to Islamic tradition, Muhammad gained quite a good reputation during these travels. At the age of 25, he married a wealthy older woman named Khadija and continued to work as a merchant and trader for the next 15 years. It was in 610 CE, at the age of 40 years old, that Muhammad is said to have received his first revelation from God. And several years later, after many more revelations, he began to publicly reveal these revelations to the people of Mecca. Muhammad's initial proclamations were received well by some of Mecca's poorer classes, but they failed to win over the city's most powerful Arab clans, whose system of spirituality at that time relied heavily on idol worship, in direct opposition to Muhammad's monotheistic vision. As a result of this spiritual conflict, Muhammad's own tribe, the Quraysh, began to persecute his early followers, causing many to flee south to the kingdom of Aksum for protection. Muhammad continued to regularly communicate with Allah, the Muslim God, culminating in a miraculous night journey from Mecca to the farthest mosque, now believed by Muslims to be the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, during which he is said to have ascended to the heavens. In 622 CE, in an attempt to continue spreading his revelations and grow the Muslim movement, he journeyed north to the city of Yathrib. At the time of Muhammad's arrival, Yathrib's population was predominantly Jewish, including Kohanim and Levites who had fled there after the destruction of the Second Temple, as well as some Roman missionaries. The Jews of Yathrib engaged in all sorts of work and trade, and spoke Yahudia, a Jewish dialect of Arabic. Muhammad immediately saw the Jews in Yathrib as potential allies, particularly since many of Islam's core doctrines were very similar to Jewish ones. The two religions shared the belief in the one indivisible God, the coming of the last days, a prohibition of idol worship, a commandment to give charity, many similar dietary restrictions, a focus on ritual washing and purification before prayer, the obligation of circumcision, and even had a shared fast day. In Islam, Ramadan originated as a single fast day that took place on the same day as Yom Kippur. Initially, Muhammad even commanded worshippers to pray facing the direction of Jerusalem, just as the Jews did. However, by this time the Torah and Talmud were essentially fixed canons, and some of Muhammad's revelations were in direct opposition to this now well-entrenched Jewish teaching. In particular, Muhammad claimed that Ishmael, not Isaac, was the son who God commanded Abraham to sacrifice, and told of Abraham visiting Ishmael and Hagar in the desert and bestowing a blessing upon them, something never mentioned in the Jewish canon. He also insisted that those who wrote the Talmud were frauds, and that his revelations, which would later be compiled into the Quran, were the ultimate truth. Understandably, given these departures from Jewish thought, the Jews of Yathrib could not get on board with Muhammad's new religion, and many Jewish poets actively spoke out against him, reciting anti-Muslim poetry in open-air markets and town squares, and insisting on the validity of Jewish belief. One man in particular, a poet named Abu Afaq, pleaded with Jews to steer clear of Islam, infuriating Muhammad and his followers, and ultimately resulting in the man's murder. Interestingly, many of these Jewish poets speaking out against Islam were actually women, 
who seemed to be some of the most vocal opponents of Muhammad's claims. Unfortunately, many of these critics were killed by early followers of Muhammad. Partly as a result of the Jewish rejection of Islam, Muhammad changed the direction of prayer from Jerusalem to Mecca, his birthplace, and the place of his initial revelations. Despite their issues with his religious ideas, many Jews had initially hoped that Muhammad might help to unite some of the Jewish tribal clans in Arabia, who were often engaged in conflict with one another. However, by the time he arrived in Yathrib, it was clear that Muhammad and the most powerful of the Jewish clans were not seeing eye to eye. Several of these, including the Banu Nadir and Banu Kainuka clans, had allied with the Quraysh tribe against Muhammad and attempted to bribe non-Jewish clans to join them in their opposition of Islam. The wealth and power of these Jewish clans may have initially persuaded some to join them. However, it led others to join Muhammad against them, hoping to take a piece of their wealth once they were defeated. Muhammad quickly rose to become not just a prominent spiritual figure, but also a political leader in Yathrib. As a result, he gained followers who served both as new converts to Islam and as a small military force. Muhammad used this growing army to quell various incursions by the Quraysh tribe who opposed him, but also used it to clap back against the Jews. Both the Banu Nadir and Banu Kanuka were driven out of Yathrib by the growing Muslim movement, forced north to Kaibar and eventually south into Syria. The Quraiza, another Jewish clan who had allied with the Quraysh tribe, were brutally punished by Muhammad and his new movement. All the men were put to death, and the women and children were taken as slaves and forcibly converted to Islam. Some of these slaves were then sold off to buy weapons for Muslim fighters, while others were married off to Muslim men, including Muhammad's second wife, Rahaina. Despite this expulsion of Jews from Yathrib, now renamed Medina by Muhammad, Jews continued to live in the increasingly Muslim-controlled Hejaz. And, after the initial friction and ultimate Muslim victory, the new rulers of the land laid out what would become the basic structure of authority in Muslim Arabia, a community the Muslims named the Ummah. This structure was codified in the Constitution of Medina, a document put together several years after Muhammad's arrival in the city. As part of this document, Muhammad described what the relationship between the Jews and Muslims would look like in this new era. Under Muslim rule, Jewish clans would be offered a military alliance with the Muslims, whereby the Jews could choose whether or not to join any military campaigns the Muslims chose to engage in. But whether or not they chose to participate, the Jews were obligated to pay a share of the military expenses. The treaty also specified that Jews were forbidden from making alliances with any tribes aside from the Muslims. In return for their military contributions, Jews would be considered a part of the Ummah, indistinguishable from Muslims under law, and would be able to continue practicing Judaism and receive Muslim protection should they be threatened. The constitution of Medina seemed to ensure protection for Jews under Muslim rule, but unfortunately, it was not always followed. After their victory in Medina, Muhammad began to believe that the Jews of Kaibar, the nearby city housing some of Muhammad's greatest enemies, were plotting an attack. So, in a preemptive strike, he marched his Muslim army to the city. Kaibar was home to three main Jewish clans, each of whom were based out of a large enforced fortress within the city. In 628 CE, according to Muslim histories, Muhammad's military force entered Kaibar and, one by one, attacked the Jewish fortresses. 
After months of sequential battles, the Muslims managed to conquer every fortress in Kaibar but one. And, seeing the hopelessness of their situation, the remainder of Kaibar's Jews surrendered. In a negotiated treaty, Muhammad agreed to allow the Jews to stay in the city and continue to practice Judaism, so long as they paid him a tribute of half of their yearly harvest. Muhammad also took some of the members of the Jewish clans as prisoners. One of these, the daughter of one of the clan's chiefs, ultimately became Muhammad's second Jewish wife. The Muslim conquest of Kaibar was a devastating and unexpected blow for the Jews there, and led to many Jewish deaths, including some of the clan's leaders. Shortly after the Muslims had taken Kaibar, the wife of one of these leaders presented Muhammad with a lavish feast, but, unbeknownst to Muhammad, the meat she served was filled with poison, in revenge of her husband's death. Muhammad was able to detect the poison before swallowing it, but one of his close followers was not so lucky, and ultimately died. The Jewish woman was executed for her treason, and some Muslims feel that this exposure to the poison ultimately contributed to Muhammad's death four years later. By the time of Muhammad's death in 632 CE, the Muslim empire had grown to encompass nearly the entire Hejaz. With Muhammad gone, leadership of the Ummah came under various caliphs, or successors. The initial successor was Abu Bakr, Muhammad's father-in-law and closest advisor, and he was followed in 634 CE by Umar I, who was known as a fierce warrior and conqueror. Umar I would go on to lead the caliphate for 10 years and played a large role in further expanding the Muslim empire. In 638 CE, 10 years after Rome retook Jerusalem from the Sasanians, Umar managed to conquer Jerusalem from the Romans. Interestingly, there was an entire Jewish faction fighting in Umar's army, who led the Muslim fighters through to the Temple Mount. Once there, Umar cleaned up the site and, according to Muslim writings, to thank the Jews for their help, allowed 70 Jewish families from the Galilee to live in Jerusalem and build a synagogue close to the Temple Mount. The next order of business was to build a Muslim temple in Jerusalem. But where to build it? Umar I asked this question to one of his advisors, a Yemeni Jew who had converted to Islam. The advisor suggested the Temple Mount, as it was known to the former Jew as a holy site, having previously been home to the second temple prior to its destruction. Umar blessed the site, and it eventually became the site of the Dome of the Rock. In the years following the conquest of Jerusalem, Umar continued to expand the Muslim empire widely, growing to include Egypt, Cyrenica, much of Libya, and almost the entire Sasanian Persian Empire. But by the end of his reign, he had become increasingly intolerant of other religions. In 642 CE, Umar declared that there could be only one accepted faith in the Arabian Peninsula. Islam. All unbelievers were to be expelled, converted, or killed, particularly the Jews of Narjan and Kaibar. Many Jews submitted to Islam, but some few managed to remain and continue to practice their Judaism. Aside from Umar's change of heart, in the rest of Muslim-controlled territory, the constitution of Medina was still for the most part being honored. Jews were free to travel where they liked, could practice any job they liked, aside from public administration, and were protected in practicing their religion. But a new set of rules was soon put forth, dictating the role of Jews in the new Muslim world. These rules were codified in a document called the Pact of Umar, whose origins are somewhat obscure, 
but was most likely written during the reign of the 8th century caliph, Umar II. The major change in this document was that, whereas previously Jews were indistinguishable under law from Muslims, now they were considered dhimi, a tolerated group, but no longer equal with Muslims in the eyes of the law. Dhimmi status meant that Jews in the Muslim empire were to be protected, but their protection was contingent on the payment of a yearly tax called the jizya in gold dinar pieces. But it also meant the loss of their equality, and although Jewish religion was technically tolerated, Jews were frequently reminded of their inferiority. Under the Pact of Umar, Jews were banned from practicing their religion publicly. This meant no parades or open festivals on holidays, and that synagogues could never be built higher than mosques. Jews were also forbidden from riding horses, instead being forced to ride mules, and when they rode, they must sit side-saddle, a position of humiliation. Jews were not allowed to carry weapons of any kind, leaving them open to harassment and violence, and, should they be caught violating any of these rules, no Jew could present evidence at their trial. Jewish men were strictly prohibited from marrying Muslim women, although interestingly the other way around was still acceptable. And, perhaps most distressingly to our modern minds, the Jews were forced to wear yellow clothing with a distinctive hat and badge to mark themselves as Jews to the rest of the community. It is here that we will leave our story for this week, with the new Muslim empire having spread throughout the Middle East, and Jews having initially been protected, but now viewed as second-class citizens. Next week, we will dive further into Jewish life in this new Muslim world. That's next time on The Jewish Story.